0: By becoming a monthly patron you'll also receive our weekly newsletter.
1: Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay coming to you from Toronto. Andrew Doyle is a man of contradictions. On one hand he's the brains behind the fictional Twitter character Titania McGrath, an over the top social justice, faux intersectionalist who routinely lights up social media with her pitch perfect satire of overprivileged wokesters. Yet Doyle himself is a mild-mannered intellectual a former professor and BBC personality, he has a doctorate in Renaissance literature from Oxford, which I'm pretty sure Titania McGrath doesn't have. He's also the author of a serious new book called Free Speech and Why It Matters, in which he makes the case for unfettered free expression. Doyle isn't a say-anything hothead, just the opposite, as you'll hear from this podcast, In fact, in his book, he makes a strong case for voluntary codes of decorum based on consideration for others, just not legally imposed censorship regimes based on coercion. And while he rails against cancel culture, as we all do, Doyle is one of the success stories, someone who not only hasn't been cancelled, but who continually gets away with poking at the pieties of ultra-progressive culture while making us all laugh in the process. Andrew Doyle spoke to me last week from London. Here are excerpts from our conversation. One of the things I learned from this book is that you have a background teaching Renaissance history.
2: I, I did a doctorate in uh, Renaissance poetry, so that might be where that's coming from. And I also taught the Shakespeare module at at Oxford University to the undergraduates. So I was teaching that aspect of the of the undergraduate degree, and then later I became a Secondary school teacher, where I taught English literature.
1: <laughs> There's an interesting anecdote you tell about things that are are lost in translation. You talk about a German student you had and how he caused offense. Could you tell that story? Because I found it very interesting. Part of it is I have a German car and when it's time for an oil change, the message that comes up is something like, you must get oil change now. Yes. (laughs) And there's literally an exclamation mark.
2: Yeah, um, that sort of abruptness relates uh, exactly to what I was talking about. I mentioned just very briefly an anecdote about when I was a boarding school teacher. So I was what they call a resident tutor. So I would live in the house with with 60 boys. I wasn't teaching them necessarily. I I was in charge of their pastoral care. So one of those boys was a German Boy, a German student, who would who had managed to alienate just about everyone in the boarding house. And I would often talk to him in the evenings. You know, he was perfectly nice and he had his English was pretty good. It wasn't perfect, but it was pretty good. But what had happened is the way in which he expressed himself wasn't really a true reflection of his personality. He would be very abrupt, very curt. He would sound sort of needlessly curt at odd moments. And the example I give in the book is where he would say things like, instead of saying, Please would you shut the door, he would say, You must shut that door now. And what this did is it rankled the other boys in the boarding house and it got them very much. They didn't like him, ultimately, as a result of this. But what I soon realized is they didn't know him. They were they were only seeing him almost in translation. And the point I make in the book is that to an extent, that's true of all of us, even if we're speaking the same language, that we're actually uh, not 100 percent communicating how we feel accurately at any given time, even even in our moments of greatest clarity. Therefore, the point I'm making is that generosity of interpretation and the assumption of good intent is always well advised.
1: You speak and write in a very traditional academic fashion, yet one of the reasons I know of you is that you are the mind and voice behind Titania McGrath. Is that how you pronounce it?
2: That's right, yeah. Titania McGrath, yeah.
1: <laughs> I think people who listen to the Colette podcast might know who Titania McGrath is, But for those who don't, she's this satirical, over-the-top, young, white, well-intentioned social justice enthusiast who often gives voice to highly extrapolated versions of social justice dogmas. But one of the reasons that Twitter account is so popular is that you really are good at stepping into the voice of that kind of uh, mindset, how is someone like you, who seems to have a traditional academic background, I mean, you, you taught at Oxford, how have you managed to master that idiom?
2: Well, I've always um, been a writer, first and foremost, and I've written plays, and I've written musical theatre, and uh, I've written a lot of radio plays, for instance, and um, and therefore I'm used to writing characters. Uh, I, I, I wrote co-wrote a comedic character called Jonathan Pye for three years, which had a lot of uh, viral videos,
1: a sort of political satire. Oh, he's very funny. I've seen him.
2: And uh, For the first three years of that character, that was me and him writing it together. So I, I'm used to, as a, as a writer, what you always do when you create a character is you, you try and find their voice and you try and make sure that not all the voices sound the same and not all the characters speak in the the same way. I mean, it's often a a criticism of Tarantino that all his characters, even the children have a kind of Tarantino-esque flair in Their dialogue. It's true. You know, I I should say at this point that I, I really like a lot of his work. I'm not being critical of that. Um, But yeah, that, that is what writers strive to achieve is that you, you get the character and the character isn't you. And actually you're not the first person to mention this. I, I had an interview the other day sort of saying, you know, that it's a surprise to him that, that, The way I write this book sounds so different to the way Titania speaks. But of course, Titania hasn't written this book. And this is this is more my this is my own voice. Uh, And I suppose that's what people are unaccustomed to such are the perils of um, creating a character that is far more well-known than you are You know, that's that's what happens.
1: Well, I'm sort of reminded of I don't know like a (laughs) really successful sitcom actor You know, I imagine like in the uh, 70s and 80s when Henry Winkler was invited to dinner parties He was always instructed to to talk like the fawns That's a super dated (laughs) reference, but actually a lot of these shows are coming back my teenage kids watch the fresh prince of bel-air
2: That's the thing about these kids because of the internet They've got access to these old things when I was a teenager in fact, all the kids knew all these old songs from even before my time.
1: And I didn't understand why. So this is a tangent, but they're using it to access crap. They are. My kids watch Full House. <laughs> That's like the worst example of sitcom. Anyway, this has nothing to do with the interview. So, but the reason I mentioned the Henry Winkler thing, when you were with your friends, would people be like, oh, talk like Titania McGrath?
2: Well, of course, I've never achieved a serious degree of fame, and therefore it doesn't affect me in the way that it would affect Henry Winkler.
1: Oh, that's not true. Uh, that's uh, Well, anyway, maybe I'm biased because of the social media circles I'm in. But yeah, Titania, uh, she's pretty famous. Uh,
2: I've certainly had situations where people only want to talk about her. I mean, that that tends to be what happens. And in fact, even with... With, with this book you know the, the the few articles that have appeared about it tend to be illustrated with an image of titania not an image of, of me and that is a, there was even a, a quite a silly review actually the other day basically complaining that it wasn't funny enough well it's not a comedy book it's, it's it, it, it was a really silly thing to say I guess that's what happens isn't it you you know actors complain of this all the time though don't they that, that, that you get a kind of you get typecast. And then people's because people's expectations are so narrow, and they they just assume that you you can only do one thing, and that's it. And that, and and if more than that, that you should only do one thing. I think there's a. A straight. I mean, I, it would have been weird if I'd have been cracking gags in this book.
1: There's a short chapter in the book titled Comedy and Satire. And, f- you know, for those looking for jokes, it's it's the opposite. You actually talk about this horrible mass murder that took place at Charlie Hebdo.
2: Once you start talking about comedy and talking about satire in any kind of analytical way, it automatically becomes unfunny. Everyone knows that. So, but, but in that case, in particular, that chapter, I did want to focus on Charlie Hebdo as being the most famous and, and pertinent example, I think, of where satirists have been targeted uh, in a very literal way.
1: And now a message from Blinkist, the app that distills the essence from over 4,000 best selling non fiction books and brings them to you in 15 minute text and audio explainers. As part of my job at Quillette, I need to be conversant about what books my readers and listeners are talking about, in part because a lot of the authors of those books end up on this podcast but life is busy, Blinkist lets me dive into a topic quickly and find out how to deploy my reading time best. Blinkist also has teamed up with popular podcast creators to blink those podcasts for you too. And yes, the company uses the word blink as a verb like that, it's a thing. By blinking a podcast using a feature called Shortcasts, you can get to the heart of an episode quickly, complete with high quality audio. You can jump right in on the go during your commute at the gym around the house or even download to listen offline 15 million people are already using blinkist to broaden their knowledge in 27 nonfiction categories including self-improvement personal growth management leadership and mindfulness and like i've told you before the length of a typical blinkist abridgment is just 15 minutes about the length of time it takes me to walk my dog Some of my recent favorites include The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator by Timothy C. Weingard, Becoming by Michelle Obama, and The AI Economy by Roger Boodle. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Quillette to start your free 7-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist Premium Membership. That's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, blinkuscom slash Quillette to get 25% off and a 7-day free trial. blinkuscom slash Quillette. And now, back to our podcast. You're careful to talk about how human beings obey decorum. Yes. You use that word and I thought it was very interesting. What is the difference between being a slavish rules follower and applying decorum because society would be impossible if we didn't have unstated rules of decorum.
2: Exactly. Uh, decorum is about consideration for other people. It is about empathy and compassion and and not not thinking that you're the center of the universe and that the only things that matter are your comfort. It's the opposite of that sort of hedonistic epicurean idea that your pleasure is the only thing that that matters. I suppose I wanted to come pick up on what you said about how I get away with it. Because I'm not sure I do. I, I, I think it's it's made an awful lot of people angry.
1: And Well, wait a sec. So I'm looking at the back of this book. Yeah. Uh, it, it's an imprint of Little Brown. Yes. Big publisher. Your name on a Little Brown book, to my mind, that's that's getting away with it.
2: I am very grateful that, that there was a, a mainstream publisher that was willing to publish either this book or Titania, actually particularly the, the two Titania books, because I don't think another publisher would have done so. I think it was a bit of a, a risk because the publishing industry in particular, as you may know, is is systemically woke in terms of the staff there. I mean, I, I know this because I well, I can't say too much about the publishers I've worked with. but But look, let's just put it this way. Every publisher knows that the majority of people who work in publishing can be quite intolerant of of different ideas and diversity of thought. You
1: don't have to tell me. I mean, I I live and work in Toronto and Penguin Random House here. I mean, the reason the place exists and even in terms of corporate profits, the Canadian sub actually fed money back to the Americans because they made so much money on the Jordan Peterson book. And yet you had this attempted failed staff revolt against Jordan Peterson's second book yes, by by rank and file editors who many of whom like they confessed they hadn't even read the thing. That's an especially clear example because their jobs wouldn't exist without Jordan Peterson.
2: Sure. Book. And then the example over here which would be equivalent would be the JK Rowling example, which is actually my publisher, that's Little Brown. And to be fair to the managing director of Little Brown, ultimately he did say we stand for free speech. We're not going to. You can't say that you won't work on her children's book because you disapprove of something she said in a, in a private capacity. So that that decision was made. However, what I would say is I think if she was a less lucrative author, the decision would have gone the other way.
1: You specifically give an example in the book, not Little Brown, but there's an author, Gillian Phillip, I think is her name.
2: That's correct. Yes.
1: So it's a social justice movement. And yet... The people who have the most money can buck the movement, like J.K. Rowling does, but somebody who is less privileged, a less known writer, they get cancelled, which to my mind is opposite of social justice. This is why
2: I wanted to write the chapter on cancel culture in this present book, because I'm at pains to point out cancel culture predominantly impacts on those who are less well off. It's, it's normal people. It's not, it's not the JK Rowling's of this world. And I you mean, know, JK Rowling gets some unforgivable misogynistic abuse on on a daily basis online. And I'm not justifying that uh, I'm, what I'm saying is that's not her being cancelled that's just her having to deal with some very horrible individuals um, the, the, the cancellation idea the idea of cancel culture as a metaphor uh, is when people lose their jobs and livelihood and have their reputations trashed for often very uh, slight uh, maybe a mischosen word or an, an unfashionable opinion but it's it's all, almost always ordinary working people it isn't as a lot of people who t- try to deny that cancel culture exists, they'll say they're just holding the powerful to account. Uh, but but the victims of cancel culture are virtually never the powerful.
1: One of the other paradoxes is that a lot of leftists are now essentially lobbying for the power of Silicon Valley billionaires to control the marketplace of ideas. Mm. Oddly in in progressive Twitter culture the mark of status is how many followers you have
2: Well they're not leftists I think is the answer to that. They consider themselves leftists They do. They self-identify as leftists And I respect that If you, you know, if you don't care about first and foremost, if you don't care about class and economic inequality, you're not authentically left wing. And I think, you know, we don't get to decide to just redefine what left wing means just because uh, those who call themselves left wing appear to not have done any basic reading on the subject. Um, I think. There's a long, long history of writing on the subject. You don't get to just jettison class concern and still call yourself left wing, in my view. I, I think it's it's what has happened is identity politics has, has taken over uh, a lot of people who say that they are on the left to the to the expense of class consciousness. That's what's very interesting about it. I think that's what it's to do with. I think it's the rise of identity politics, the rise of intersectionality, all of this stuff, which is just fundamentally bourgeois. You know, I mean, the, the chief proponents of this movement tend to have double barreled names, are privately educated. The ones with the loudest voices, they as you say, they cheer on multi-billion dollar corporations who they wish to empower to do censorship on our behalf. None of this is left wing really.
1: It's true that that often you see who's leading the pitchfork brigade on behalf of the progressives. It's someone named Hog McConnell Hogg <laughs> and sometime here in Canada we just had a controversy at Mount Allison University where basically a bunch of upper-middle-class white people decided that a Lebanese-Canadian woman who had survived the Lebanese Civil War, that her opposition to Black Lives Matter radicalism, as she saw it, that that was highly problematic, and they wanted to try and get her fired. Right. For a while, I was in a highly woke left-wing magazine here in Canada, and we'd be having the discussions, and people, <laughs> people had, had originally considered me the conservative in the room, and I I was the one who was saying, hasn't anyone here read Das Kapital or the Communist Manifesto? Like, <laughs> but anyway, moving on. Your discussion of the history of free speech—you describe free speech as the keystone of democracy. I think is, is the term you use. Yeah. History and European history, in particular, free speech was the baseline only very recently, and even in the United States, you had laws that criminalized opposition to things like conscription. And these were aimed at socialists, by the way. We've talked about role reversal. Is it really true that free speech is this well-established keystone of democracy? Isn't it a fairly recent institution?
2: Yes, it is. I I think that's... When I sort of give that sort of brief overview of, of where it comes from, I think the point I'm trying to make is that it's relatively recent. Insofar as you know, I mention the origins in Athenian society, and then uh, I suppose through the the impact of the Church through the Middle Ages, and then the uh, French Revolution, and uh, obviously the First Amendment. Um, but at no point do I say this suggests that this was established and is the norm. In fact, you know, I, I'm a, I sort of point out that, for instance, in the uh, in the Roman Empire, the it didn't extend beyond the Senate. You know, and it was all men, for instance, and this is, you know, it's not something that I'm saying, it was invented by the Greeks, and then we've had free speech forevermore. That isn't what I'm saying there. What I'm really doing in that chapter is just giving a a brief overview of the origins of of the notion of freedom of speech to, to make the point. That our society, as it currently stands, is pretty miraculous, actually, for the fact that we have this
1: thing, you know. But as soon as we have it, we want to give it away. Right, right. This happens in all spheres of politics. As as soon as a society becomes wealthy, you know, the next generation is like, well, what is wealth anyway?
2: Right. I I did want to give a brief overview. I didn't want this to be a a history of free speech. That's not what this book is. I mean, I'm sure you can tell that. um, But I wanted to give a few basic background points uh, which would open up people to further reading should they wish to explore that side of things. But the point ultimately I want to make there is that we should treasure this because it is so relatively recent. Uh, when I talk about it being the keystone of liberal democracy, it is, it's the keystone of the liberal democracy that we currently have and, and aspire to sustain. And it troubles me dearly that, like you say, there, there's a flippancy about it as as though, you know, as though this is nothing. Actually, I think I say it explicitly at one point that our society is unbelievable it's it's miraculous that we have this and the idea that we should just be so casual about these cracks that we see in in our free speech the fact that when in the uk as i point out the 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 behavior of the police the determination of the police routinely to monitor people's speech and investigate and arrest people for things they've said and i know that doesn't mean that we're living in a tyrannical regime and i don't say that at all that, but even that tendency, that growing tendency, and the flippancy with which people just dismiss it, oh, well, it's fine, it's a couple of overzealous police. Every
1: time I'm on social media and I see a picture of British police, it's always these two constables standing around awkwardly holding a flag with a metastasizing number of colours. It used to be five, now it's about 37. Oh, it's
2: a, yeah, it's a million now, it's impossible. And
1: the flags have become grotesque. Gay men in particular should be disgusted by being associated with that. You would think. Yeah. By the way, I have just perpetrated what I now understand is called a non-crime hate incident. Yes. And this term appears in the first chapter. I actually find this more creepy than actual laws, because if there is a law against cracking the kind of mildly homophobic joke I just made, that's fine. I can challenge the law in court. But you now have this category in Britain, we'll use the example of a guy, his name's Harry Miller, 53-year-old entrepreneur. Yeah. He said something about a poem, and... The police said this was a non crime hate incident yes. and actually visited his house. If it's non crime, go solve a bank robbery. What are they doing going to people's houses?
2: Well, that's why he took them to court ultimately. And, and, and well, in fact, he, he hadn't even written the, the poem in question, he'd retweeted it. It wasn't his poem.
1: Cops are visiting a guy because he retweeted a poem? Like, have you, Brits, like, have you solved all the real crime? <laughs> well, like, <laughs> are, you, are you living in a, in a society free of arson and kidnapping and burglary?
2: Well, what was particularly shocking is when that when that story broke. Then there were further investigations about the extent of non-crime and the extent to which non-crime is recorded. I mentioned in the book the statistic of a hundred twenty thousand incidents recorded in a five-year period. So this is a sta- This is standard police uh, behaviour, and it's worse than that, as you imagine. I mean, of course, you're in you're in Canada, so you're safe. Mm, safe-ish. In the UK, if you if we were sitting face to face now in the UK, and you just said that comment about the flag, and I decided that was a, an attack on me as a gay man because you were motivated by hate for me, then that would that could escalate to actual hate crime, because as the College of Policing and indeed the government's own website on hate crime makes clear, uh, there is no evidence required of the hate factor for it to be recorded as a hate crime. So that could that would be recorded in the official hate crime statistics of the UK if I claim that I have perceived that you did it from for hateful intent. Of course, I have no knowledge of your intent. But that doesn't matter. And and that's that's how far we've gone in the UK. That And that is sinister, as you say. It's not just I mean, it's it's creepy. It's all of those things, all of those all of those words that we can use to describe it. But it shouldn't be there. It shouldn't be happening. And the fact that nobody seems to be addressing this in any serious way, we don't have any politicians standing up in Parliament and saying, maybe we should just repeal all of the, these hate speech laws that we have.
1: And now, a commercial message for those of you looking to add Bitcoin to your investment portfolio or retirement account. And I realize that this is a confusing subject. I remember the first time I got Bitcoin, I walked into a convenience store that had the Bitcoin logo, went up to a kind of reverse ATM, fed in some bills, and received, in return, a long series of numbers and letters. Then I spent an hour trying to figure out how to feed those numbers and letters into a Bitcoin wallet on my phone. I wanted to invest in cryptocurrencies, but surely there had to be a better way. And that's what brings me to BitTrust IRA, a seamless, secure, and easy way to add cryptocurrency to your portfolio. BitTrust IRA stores your private keys with military-grade encryption. They have a 24-7 trading platform with no minimum investment and unlimited trades. They also offer what I'm told are the lowest trading fees in the industry. Many crypto assets have been great performers this year, and some analysts will tell you they're a great way to start building intergenerational wealth. For those looking to invest, skip the convenience store and go to bittrustira.com slash quillette to learn more. For a limited time, BitTrust IRA is waiving the sign-up fee for Quillette podcast listeners, a $50 value. Go to bittrustira.com slash quillette, B-I-T-T-R-U-S-T, IRA.com slash Q U I double L E double T E. And now back to our podcast. Well, isn't Boris Johnson, who I was assured by many progressive British publications was the second coming of Benito Mussolini, like, why <laughs> isn't he doing anything about this? Well, that's because
2: uh, you know people don't know what fascism means anymore, do they? And
1: <laughs> yeah, um, but, but I mean, even the the sort of milk toast conservatism that passes for uh, neo-fascism. This is actually a genuine question. How how yeah. come he hasn't done anything about this?
2: Um, because it's very unpopular to do. Because the 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 social justice activists have sort of won. Out in terms of the popular perception of the power of language. You know, we now have this phrase hate speech, which even though most people are very sceptical about the social justice movement still, most people will use the word hate speech quite happily and, and uncritically. They will claim that certain forms of speech create violence and that certain forms of jokes, for instance, normalise hateful attitudes. And all of these propositions, because that is what they are, they're not conclusions, they're propositions that require interrogation and evidence on interrogation. If we look at the data, if we look at the studies on this subject, on media effects theory, for instance, which I mentioned in the book, we find that there is no direct correlation between mass media consumption and public behaviour. So we know it's not true. There is now a generally accepted view that human beings hear things that celebrities say or politicians say or whatever and they act mechanically on cue like automata that's the general belief the research tells us that that is absolutely not true but everyone has bought it and that includes politicians and the other problem is if a politician were to stand up in parliament and say we need to repeal hate speech laws the accusation that would come to that person, particularly online, but also from publications such as The Guardian and The New Statesman and and The Independent and those that want to extend hate speech laws rather than curb them, would be that that politician, that he would like more racism, more homophobia, more sexism, because he wants to enable those people to speak. That's the level of degradation that the free speech debate has reached which is, of course, one of the major impulses for me writing the book, because I don't believe it's helpful when no one understands the issues.
1: The historical precedent here is quite amazing, because as I learned from reading your book, when neo-Nazis, I mean, these are genuinely hateful, despicable people. Uh, When neo-Nazis marched in Skokie, Illinois, this is in the 1970s, the ACLU the American Civil Liberties Union. This is the old ACLU before it just became retweeting rainbows and emojis. Yeah. It was then led by a Jewish man. He stood up. By the way, (laughs) this is a free speech cause that even someone like me, I'm like, "Eh, I'm not sure about that. But he stood up for it. Yeah. He said, look, this is the foundation. No matter how despicable their views, you give to your worst enemy a right that you find precious to yourself. Yes. That ethos, I mean, I regard that as a liberal... Even a left-wing ethos—it's certainly a liberal ethos. Yes, it's that's now that's now absent. Yes,
2: and 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 the the man who wrote the book, Def- defending my enemy, uh, Naya, his name is. Um, he says in that book, you know, I, I stood up for the rights of neo-Nazis in order t- to defeat neo-Nazis. You know, yeah, be, you yeah. know, that's the point is that, uh, the, the 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 he understood as the ACLU back when it was a serious organization understood uh, that freedom of speech is a much bigger principle than these few objectionable people. They don't get to own this. And and we should, certainly shouldn't dilute the principle because of their behaviour. Because to do so is, in fact, to, to give them way too much power, power they simply don't deserve. And and yes, it's it's hard. It's this is the hard thing about defending the principle is that people will accuse you of defending the substance of what some of the worst people in society have to say.
1: Well, it's also it dilutes the idea of hate speech here in Canada. We, we have a criminal law to criminalize real hate speech. It's I think it's Section 319 of our criminal code, yep. and the definition of hate speech is defined in the way that a serious person would have defined that term when the law was drafted, which I, I think goes back to the 80s or 90s, which is, you know, we need to exterminate this group or, um, you know, the Nazis were right to do X, Y, and Z or justifying slavery, like, but like really hardcore stuff. Yep. Um, and prosecutions, I think to this day, you need the explicit sign-off of the Attorney General, and there have only been, I think, a couple of dozen prosecutions, because people like that, just there aren't that many people like that in society. Now, hate speech is applied to a bad joke about the three Uzbeks who walked into a bar, but that, to me, does a disservice to victims of actual, real hate speech. But that's also why you shouldn't have hate speech on the statute books at all
2: at all, even for those horrendous things you just See, described. You might, I
1: think you go farther than me, because I think if somebody goes, if somebody stands at a street corner and says, we need to throw Jews in ovens, to my mind, it's defensible to say, look, that's, that's over the line, and that's a criminal offence.
2: In which case, I would, I, mean, I would differ with you on that. I don't think that should be criminalised, for the very reason that, I, that I'm outlining here, which is that it is bound to be open to abuse and exploitation. Bound to be. Once you say, we are going to allow the government the right to criminalise speech, of any kind, uh, hateful speech, let's call it, then, uh, particularly when it's something as nebulous as as hate, um, then anything eventually could fall under that definition. And that means that you're protecting yourself by protecting the right of that madman to say that awful thing.
1: Canada provides an interesting counterexample, because the criminal law we have, Section 319, has not been abused, to my mind. When things started to go downhill was when human rights commissions, which are administrative bodies and don't require, obviously, the sign off of the attorney general. When it became an administrative rather than a political decision to initiate prosecutions or to allow frivolous complaints, that's when things started going downhill. The problem happens when you start encoding it with bureaucracies.
2: Which is almost inevitable in of itself. If you look at other countries that have hate speech laws, in fact, you know, let's go back to the UK. You know, people have served jail time for jokes.
1: I'm thinking of a police officer. Don't they say to themselves, this isn't why I went to police college. You know, I wanted to make society safer. I don't want to visit little old ladies and tell them that they have the wrong emojis on their tweets or whatever.
2: I hope you're right. Um, I, 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 I think you're right. I know one person who was prosecuted for hate speech for a joke. He did say to me that some of the police did think this was ridiculous and privately sort of admitted that to him. And and that's that should be introducible
1: as evidence to, to
2: my mind. I mean, even in the court, when, when the joke was explained, people were laughing. The question is not let's assess the speech and consider whether it's hateful or not, whether it should be allowed or not. The question is, do you want to empower the state to police the words of its citizens and that should be the question that we're asking ourselves and 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 that's why we do get into these in this difficult terrain you know look i i do i do sympathize with what you're saying about someone saying you know we need to murder this group of people or whatever you know what a horrible thing something that i don't want to to hear i've heard christian evangelicals on street corners talking about how gay people will burn in hell and all the rest of it and it's not a pleasant thing to hear but i want them to have the right to say it because their right to say it is the same right that I use in, in the way that I expose that or criticize it or ridicule or even protest against that kind of thing. And I, I, I want those things in place. And as I say, it comes down to a question of balance. On balance, what would you prefer? A few. I mean, as you put it yourself, very few people want to engage in this kind of hateful discourse because very few people are like that. So is that what? what is more dangerous? Let me put it this way. What is more dangerous? A few extremists. Attempting to proselytize, attempting to to spread their hateful view, which very few people are going to be receptive to in the first place, or precedent by which the state is enabled and allowed to at any point incarcerate its citizens for things they say.
1: But all it takes is one example to give power to the other side. And I'm thinking, I'm guessing... I'm guessing your book was already in galleys by the time that that right-wing mob invaded the Capitol in Washington. Uh,
2: yes, I, I, I didn't mention that because it, it was already written, yeah.
1: <laughs> but I can tell you, and I'm sure it's the same in UK, that that has changed the debate because every time somebody wants to shut down a Reddit forum or get an academic fired, they can say, well, we know where this leads.
2: That was my concern as soon as I saw that, I knew that what would happen is that this would happen and there would be a sudden crackdown on political speech, uh, so long as it was coming from one side of the aisle, uh, of course. I mean, we, you know, the one thing that this did do for Trump's people is it gave them this platform to give uh, numerous examples of when Democrats have effectively called for violence and used phrases such as we need to fight, go out and fight, combat, all the, the typical antagonistic metaphors that you get in, in robust political discussion. But but yes, you get this emotional knee-jerk reaction, and the thing that suffers is liberalism. By the way,
1: I just I, we were talking about jokes before. And I just want to take a moment to to contextualize and apologize for my joke, where you know I I suggested that gay men somehow have a superior sense of style. I'd like to take that back. If anything, I think their sense of style is worse.
2: What I would say to that is, I am living proof that gay people do not have a good sense of style. But the flag is hideous, objectively.
1: <laughs> this podcast—I didn't want to say anything, but we're doing this by video, so I can see you're dressed without flair and no
2: flair whatsoever. This is this is this is a, <laughs> a t-shirt I got for one pound fifty. Like, I just don't, <laughs> I, I have no taste at all. I'm comfortable with that. Our premium
1: subscribers will get uh, the video feed. <laughs> you know, I, so I was in London about, actually shortly before the pandemic, and I hired this wonderful tour guide. He immigrated from Spain, I think, 20 years previous. He loved London so much, and he knew more about the city than any anybody I, I'd met. And, and he spent the entire day taking me around London, and he took me to a place you mentioned in your book, uh, Cable Street. Ah. And there's this famous uh, Battle of Cable Street, which played out in 1936. You had fascist supporters of Mosley. Anti-fascists raised the hue and cry, and they met them. And there was this, at the time it was very violent, but it's been mythologized. And I think, if I remember, there was a whole artwork, there was an exhibit memorializing the Battle of Cable Street. What was interesting is that in your book, you point out that the rise of, of the fascists, brief rise, the laws, or at least the policies that were passed in response to that, were then weaponized against the left? Yeah, is it, how did that happen?
2: Well, because if you're if you're going to say that we're going to crack down on, on public protests for political reasons, and though and that precedent is established by law then that law can be used by future governments who may not be sympathetic to left-wing causes. The example of the miners' strike, which is a very raw topic for people in this country. It, it, it formed the basis for the Public Order Act that, that effectively clamped down on the on the miners in the 80s when Margaret Thatcher took on Arthur Scargill and the unions. And this is the, one of the reasons why the industrial heartlands of the UK have never voted Tory up until the last general election, because the, the wounds are still there from, from this period. And the last thing that the people who agitated was the Labour Party who agitated for uh, these public order laws in the wake of Cable Street. The last thing that they ever anticipated is that it would be uh, used against um, unions, you know, trade unions. (laughs) That wasn't, you know, that wasn't what this was about. And and yet yet that's exactly how they were used. And I, I suppose the bigger point I'm trying to make is that any form of legislation of this kind that curbs liberty, of of citizens will not be used in ways that you anticipate later on because for a start you don't know what government's going to get in you don't know what their intentions are it's just an inevitability
1: this episode of the quillette podcast is brought to you by magic spoon cereal a serving of magic spoon comes with zero grams of sugar 13 to 14 grams of protein and only four net carb grams it's only 140 calories per serving or about 15 minutes on the peloton It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free, and it's now available in Canada. In the past, I've told you about how much I enjoy cocoa, fruity, frosted, and blueberry flavors. Since then, Magic Spoon has added cinnamon and peanut butter flavors. And now there's two new ones, cookies and cream, and maple waffle. And as someone who likes to experiment in the kitchen, I can attest that these flavors often mix well. So, for instance, you could combine maple waffle with one of your favorite fruit flavors to simulate a fancy breakfast platter at IHOP. Go to magicspoon.com slash Quillette, that's with two L's and two T's, to grab the new limited edition cookies and cream, maple waffle, or a custom bundle of cereal to try today. And be sure to use our promo code QUILLETTE at checkout to save $5. This offer is now good anywhere in the US or Canada, but only when you use our code at checkout. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's back with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash Quillette and use the code QUILLETTE to save $5. Thank you to Magic Spoon for sponsoring this episode of the Quillette podcast. But there's, there's hypocrisy all around, because when we talk about cancel culture... It wasn't that long ago, Uh, after 9-11, I remember there was a move to get Al Jazeera and then Al Jazeera's new English channel brought into Canada. Radio and television is highly regulated in Canada, and it was conservatives who wanted to shut it down because they they imagined that Al Jazeera was just going to be, like, Twenty-four-seven footage of Osama bin Laden having a talk show, talking about how amazing terrorism is. Yeah, and it was and it was conservatives who they lobbied hard against uh, accrediting Al Jazeera. That was cancel culture.
2: Yeah, this is. I mean, this is my point. It's, ne- it's never a left-right issue. It's never the You know, it's true that at the moment more people calling for cancellations are from the left. That'll change. That'll change. But that exactly. Exactly. I mean, the example I give is when I was a kid and most of the newspapers that were calling for films to be banned were right leaning tabloids. You know, so th- th- so this is not a left right issue. This is also why I urge people to be consistent. When we had a, a similar situation in this country about two years ago now, I think, when a, a very famous comedian here, was investigated by police for a joke that she told. And because she's a left-wing comedian and she was mocking a right-wing political figure, uh, a lot of conservatives were saying she should be investigated by police, including the target of the joke. Now, I understand why he would be emotive and say something that that isn't very sensible because it was about him. I get that. But but all of these conservative voices coming out say, yes, this comedian should be investigated by the police. And I'm thinking, hold on a minute. You're, you're the people who yesterday were saying comedians should have complete artistic freedom. But when it's one of your own, they're attacking. You You renege on the principle. I, I just think consistency is all important.
1: I'm old enough to remember the flag burning debates in the United States in the mid 90s where conservatives wanted at one point a constitutional amendment that would permit them to criminalize flag burning. Mm. Because, of course, the, the flag is the symbol of liberty and free expression.
2: Yeah, same thing. It's the it's it's inconsistency, I can't stand it. It's, but it's also, the, the, the point I would urge is that it's actually self-defeating to be inconsistent, because ultimately you, it means you have no right then to complain when one of your own is censored, if you've been calling for censorship the day before.
1: I'm, I'm wondering what the climate is like in the UK in terms of the overlap of race and ideology, because I can tell you that here in Canada, when I write in support of free expression due process, basically the grab bag of, of liberal values. Yeah. Uh, not left-wing values, but liberal values. Some of my biggest supporters, including the media, are people who are visible minorities. Yeah. And they're people who immigrated or their parents immigrated from the Middle East or Central Asia you know, Some are older and they remember communist Russia or Eastern Europe, and they know what it's like to have an ideology shoved down your mouth, and to be forced to say things you don't believe, and for dissent to be prosecuted. It makes me realize that there are so many allies out there yes. that classical liberals could have, and, and maybe will have, and increasingly they do have... But often these are constituencies that conservatives alienated yes. through, through Islamophobia, which was a real problem, which is just a shame because the people who, who I find the most repugnant in terms of their doctrine or attitudes, tend to be upper middle class white people with no exposure to real life who live on Facebook and Twitter. For my mind, they've become the real, I don't want to say the enemy. I don't like to use tribal language. But if if there's one constituency that's eroding liberalism, it's not immigrants. It's overprivileged white people. It
2: absolutely is. And you'll see, uh, there was that study a few years ago um, uh, which studied the impact of political correctness. They called it political correctness. As you know, I've got some quibbles about the the use of that term, which I explore in the book. But um, effectively, the, the point stands they found that the vast overwhelming majority of ethnic minority people were not in favor of what has become known as uh, political correctness and the ones that were in favor of it were the white liberals who claimed to be looking out so in other words the, the very people they claimed to be defending didn't want their help <laughs> you know didn't want
1: it <laughs> well there was a a mortifying headline in newsweek which <laughs> is 81 percent of black americans want more police presence on their street yeah and and I remember reading that and saying, like, don't these black people have any consideration for the wealthy white academics who are trying to make the world safer for them? Like-
2: and, and similarly here, last week, in fact, there was a study that came out. 84% of black British people are not supportive of the toppling of statues, in the which is what the Black Lives Matter movement uh, are in favor of. So, you know, it's and, and then you saw all those viral videos during the, the, the height of the Black Lives Matter protests in the last summer. Uh, where you would have these posh white students berating black police officers or black people shouting in their faces, yeah. uh, saying you're racist and you're you're perpetuating racism. And it, 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 it's beyond satire, isn't it, at that point? Well,
1: it- it's not beyond satire because you're super good at it through Titania. Well, thank you. There's this awkwardness that comes when social justice enthusiasts want to express anger at Titania McGrath because on one hand, the mere fact that she makes them angry betrays the sense of recognition that they have when they read it. Yeah. But they can't just ignore her because she's hilarious.
2: Well, it pr- it proves the point I'm trying to make.
1: I think at one point they actually got the account suspended. I don't know under what auspices. How do they get past that cognitive dissonance where they don't want to show the flash of recognition that her satire does resemble their inane ideological rantings? But at the at, but at the same time, they do want to militate against Titania. How, how do they reconcile that?
2: What they do is they attack me. <laughs> they go for me uh, and they will they will uh, smear me online and uh, send threats to me and, and and tell me that I'm a fascist and 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 lie about things that I've said and all sorts of things. That's what that's what the, the trick is. That's what they do, because they know that if they get into an argument with Titania or, you know, and normally if people like that comment on under a Titania tweet, a lot of Titania's followers will just pile onto them. So they know not to do that. That's one of the downsides, I suppose, of, of having being outed as the writer of the character, you know.
1: Well, and I've given them yet more ammunition by, by outing your terrible fashion sense. <laughs> Andrew Doyle is a real person, unlike Titania McGrath. His new book is called Free Speech and Why It Matters. Thanks so much for being on the Quillette podcast. Thanks for having me.
0: If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette.